I'd like to speak this evening about some of the fundamental areas of reflection that the Buddha taught about. And it concerns essentially what it means for us to see the way things are. If we don't really see clearly what's going on within us and around us, if we don't see the nature of experience with precision, with accuracy, we find ourselves living in a way that is out of sync, that is not in harmony with life. We find ourselves often entangled in, feeling limited by or obstructed. And there's a considerable degree of distress, of pain, of suffering that arises in this situation. And so this is something the Buddha spoke of, the, the importance of, of seeing clearly and of course the significance of not seeing clearly. And the, the condition of not seeing is one we could perhaps describe as blindness. And I don't mean that in a, a negative sense. Sometimes the word that the Buddha used, avidya, is translated as ignorance, and that definitely sounds a little bit pejorative, a little bit sort of like stupid. And that's not what this is meaning or pointing to, blindness, when we don't see. And we, of course, can't yet see all things. The very process and journey of our lives is one of learning. And, of course, for most of us, for many of us perhaps, we are given the impression that by the time we've turned 18 or 20, we should have done the learning and then we get on with the living. You know, we've got our education, we've worked out how it goes, or maybe it takes a few years longer these days. But certainly by our early 20s, we need to have figured it out and get on with it. And any mistakes are really some kind of evidence of some profound failing in us. And yet, it's the most natural thing that we don't yet fully see. There's a lovely story that speaks to the importance of this as our process. And it concerns a, um, a Zen student a follower of Zen meditation who has the opportunity to meet with the grand high master of the lineage and the tradition and very revered being, very ancient and wise and also with a reputation for being a little stern. So the, this, this, this man, he's very excited but he's also a little bit worried when he goes to meet the grand master. And he, he comes up and uh, bows before her and she's sitting there like a like a mountain, like a rock, upright, firm, not looking particularly friendly. And he says, Master, Master, he knows he can ask just one or two questions. He says, Master, can you tell me what is the most important thing to cultivate? She looks at him, she says, Wisdom, discernment, good judgment. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Of course, wisdom, discernment, good judgment. Thank you, thank you. Uh, oh, uh, can you tell me how I do cultivate them? She looks at him. Through experience. She says, oh, experience, of course, experience. How do I get experience? Bad judgment. Lack of wisdom. 
Do you see how that works? When we don't understand something, we act in ways that give us the opportunity through experience which we don't always welcome to learn about what's going on. And so true seeing, the wisdom that we're interested in is that way of seeing, that capacity we have for seeing that as we begin to recognize what's happening more clearly and start to understand the processes, the dynamics and the possibilities inherent within our existence, we actually naturally experience a reduction, a dissolution and ultimately a dropping away of what we call suffering. And this is what the Buddha's teachings are concerned with, understanding what it means to transform, to heal, to release ourselves from the entanglement in what we often translate as suffering. The word the Buddha used was dukkha, and it goes a little wider than just that. But that which is hard to bear, that which is unsatisfactory, that which we struggle with in life. And so what this means is we're invited to look carefully at our experience here. We're not just meditating to get calm or doing yoga to feel good, although being calm and feeling good, hey, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm all in favour of it. But through the calming of the heart, the mind, the body, through the opening of the heart, the mind, the body, and the yoga and the meditation work together in the service of these, open, calming and opening, then we start to be able to see more clearly. We start to be able to see. But without this kind of practice, without this way of engagement, what we tend to do is believe the first impressions and the surface appearances. What first appears to us, we tend to fix on, form conclusions about, and act as if that was how it was. And it's a really interesting process to begin to reflect on, to observe and reflect upon. When those first impressions are inaccurate, we find ourselves experiencing suffering, pain, confusion, distress. And it happens so quickly, so easily. I was once, um, one morning, it was a, a late February morning, not so far from here. I was living in a different place than I am now, but about 10 miles from here on a frosty February morning. I'd just done my morning sitting and I was just about to get up. And looking out through the window in front of me, I suddenly I saw this snail. And I was just fascinated by this little creature. I just finished my meditation. You know, sometimes one's eyes are bright at the end of the practice. Not always, but sometimes. And I was looking, and there's this little snail sitting on the window ledge. And as well as seeing it and thinking, wow, how beautiful. I was always thinking, what's it doing here? How did it get in? I see my mind kick into action. I thought, and then, of course, it was quite clear what had happened because I'd, the window was open, even though it was a really cold night and morning, I'd left the window open because the paint had been peeling off it and it had got full of water and swollen up so you couldn't close it, so I'd taken a plane, trimmed the window, painted it, and then I couldn't close it because the paint had to dry. So I'd left the window, and you see, this goes boop, 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 through my mind. So that's how the snail got in, came in through the window. So why did the snail come in? Next theory, thoughts, da, 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 da. Oh, it's cold out there. It's going to freeze. Snails can't survive in winter. You don't see them in winter. It's a serious frost. He's coming, or she's coming, or it's coming. 
because it's too cold out there. It would die if it was outside, but there's no food in here. It's going to starve. I was immediately concerned. And as I was looking at the snail, I could see it's too gentle little, those little eyes on stalks just waving around. And I could see the delicate markings on a spiral shell. And it was just, wow. And then suddenly I had this thought. I thought, I know what? I'll take it and put it in my neighbor's greenhouse. <laughs> it's warm in there and there's plenty to eat. I didn't in that moment think how my neighbor might feel about that, but I was really happy because I'd resolved the problem. I found a way to take care of this little being that had come into my house. So I got up off my cushion and I reached towards it and it turned out to be a wood shaving. <laughs> Curled up in a little spiral from when I'd trimmed the window with the plane. And in that moment, the whole construction, all my concern for this little being, all my relief at having resolved the problems of its life, and the also risk of ruining my relationships with my neighbour, all that just disappeared. And it was like, oh my gosh. I didn't actually see what was in front of me. But I thought I saw and I reacted and I constructed and there was this whole problem and then there was this whole solution and in the end, actually none of it had any real basis in reality. And so we can chuckle a little at a kind of more obvious example such as this and yet in certain ways what the Buddha pointed out was that we do this kind of thing all the time. By paying attention to our experience, what we're offering ourselves the opportunity to do is to see more clearly what's actually happening here. To begin to see the way things are, to reverse the misperceptions we might be carrying and laboring under, and thereby transform the suffering created by those misunderstandings, misperceptions, and therefore misinformed ways of trying to live our lives. And the Buddha spoke of three primary and fundamental misperceptions, mis, um, yeah, misperceptions, not seeing accurately and truly, that lead to craving, to grasping, and to suffering that lead us to become entangled with life and to suffer in ways that we're not required to do. There are those elements of life that are difficult, that are challenging, that are just part of how it is. And then there's a whole range of them that are added on through blindness, essentially, through acting out of a blindness. And so the first of these areas where we kind of don't see things quite accurately. We often fool ourselves, it seems, is with regard to the tendency we have to see that which is changing as somehow permanent. To see that which is fluid and in flux as somehow fixed and immovable. And it happens to us all the time. When a pleasant experience arises, and we notice ourselves try to get hold of it, that nice moment of meditation I'd like to keep, underlying the grasping towards it that a number of you have referred to in conversations, we see that there's an idea that this is something I could get and keep and have forever. 
I, this could be a permanent thing that I could make permanent, this wonderful meditative experience. That's why we try and take hold of it. We've failed to notice that this experience will change, like all experiences do. When we resist or struggle with something difficult and painful, the underlying fear is usually that if I don't somehow figure out a way to get rid of this, I'm going to be stuck with it forever. And it's like we're acting in relationship to something which will not continue as if it is going to or might. And of course, nothing continues forever. Even the very difficult things, that some things we have to live our lives with. But fortunately, if they don't come to an end, we do. And so it doesn't go on forever. <laughs> that, that might not be that comforting. But, um, <laughs> but there's something about looking and seeing that aspect of experience. Oh, it arises, it changes, it passes away. And that's what it's like. Everything we encounter. It's like that. That's part of what we get to see when we're watching. We notice sometimes the mind is bright, sometimes it's dozy. Sometimes the breath is quiet and subtle. Sometimes it's jerky and raspy and lumpy. Oh, it changes. Some days my body will bend, some days it doesn't want to. Okay. Noticing that experience is like this. Everything is like this. If we look at it carefully, everything is like this. There's a beautiful um, refrain from the Diamond Sutta, one of the uh, sort of bodies of teachings from the later school of Buddhism in the, the northern Buddhist countries, called the Mahayana, sort of later tradition. And it, it goes like this. It says, thus you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew, a bubble in a stream. A flash of lightning in a summer cloud. A flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. And that cascade of images of evanescent, flickering, temporary, momentary things it kind of evokes a sense, oh, this is how to look at things. Things that appear and disappear. Bubble in a stream. Lightning in the summer cloud. Bubble bursting and gone. So much of our experience is like that. But we don't act as if we know it. We know. No, no one's here. I'm gonna, not going to ask you and say, oh, gosh, do things stay the same forever and you're going to tell me, yeah, of course they do. No, we all know at some level things change. But we also don't know that at some level because we find ourselves acting as if they might. So part of what happens is we pay attention as we see more carefully what's going on. As we start to recognize that a lot of the suffering we experience is like we're holding on to something that's being pulled through our hands, like rope burn. Like our experience is constantly changing and we're trying to fix it and the friction of trying to hold on to something that's moving inexorably and unstoppably, it's like it abrades the skin from our hands. And that's what happens if you try and hold a rope that's being pulled by something more powerful than your hands. That, that process of friction in life has so much to do with how we tighten around, we hold on to, we grasp. 
as if we could hold on to something that is moving through. And we can't. When we see that is the case, we're encouraged, we're invited to, to more and more let go, to more and more let be, to allow things that come to pass, to not resist the things we'd rather that weren't here, knowing that they will change, because they do, by themselves. Not trying to hold on to the things we'd like to keep, knowing that inevitably they will dissolve into something else. It's the nature of things. And it's not for me to tell you and you to believe. The practice is inviting us to look and see, is this so? And we might wonder, how is it that we fool ourselves so well, so quickly? How many times have we found ourselves acting as if this thing is going to be, or even just might, going to be permanent? With either relief, because we like it, or frustration and fear, because we don't in the anticipation of some kind of permanence or enduringness in things. It's like not really paying attention. When we see carefully and closely what's going on, a bit like driving in a car on a long straight road. If you look out the front window, what's out there in the far end of the horizon, you're travelling at 50, 60 miles an hour. It's not changing at all. You can imagine that, huh? And if you look out the back window, not while you're driving, of course, but if someone else is driving, you look out the back window on a long straight road, you're travelling at 50, 60 miles an hour, it's what, 100, 100, <laughs> around 100 kilometres an hour. Nothing much is changing out the back window either. In our experience, when we fixate on the past and the future, it looks solid. The past is just a, col a collage made of fragments of the experience that we had. It's never the whole thing. It would take as long as it took to have the experiences to actually remember the experiences in their fullness. And we can't do that because we're having more of them all the time. So we just have a few little bits patched together in a fixed pattern and it looks pretty solid so it feels like that's it. It's a fixed thing. And then from that, and we have nothing else but that, we project images into the future about what the future will be. And again, they're limited, they tend to be fixed. It's like looking out the front window or the back window of the car whizzing along at 50, 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometres an hour. And in that car, just imagine this again, if you look out the side window at what is there right at the edge of the road at the point you actually are, you can't see it. It's blurring. It's going so fast past. We can't even see it or focus on a single particular. Maybe the telegraph poles or the marker, road markers go past quickly <coughs> enough so we can see them. But the detail, we can't make it out. And that's what the present moment is like for us much of the time when we're speeding along. We can't see it clearly enough. There's too much happening. And so we tend to find it easy to focus on the future and the past and the illusion of fixity and solidity they create for us. But here in the practice and being here, we slow down. We refine the capacity to pay attention. We start to notice, actually, my gosh, if I really check it out, these moments are dissolving one after another. And we can see this, we can experience this for ourselves. The feelings, the thoughts, the sounds, the sensations, the images, the ideas. How quickly thoughts flicker into the mind and then they're gone. We don't pursue them, or grab hold of them, or resist them. Bang, they're gone. 
And there's another one, but it's a different one. And they're just gone. So, this is something to look at, to contemplate, to reflect upon. Am I responding or relating to these experiences as if I imagine that they are or could be permanent? When in fact they are not and cannot be so. To see the truth of changing phenomena, changing experiences, to find space amidst them all. Immense space. What the Buddha also spoke about here in these misperceptions, he said we constantly get caught in the misperception to see that which is incapable of giving us lasting satisfaction as having that capacity to do so. That which cannot satisfy us, give us happiness or fulfill us in any absolute or permanent way, we imagine that it will if I can just get hold of it and spend so much time and trouble trying to do so. And of course, the reverse of that likewise, that we imagine there are things which can prevent us from having happiness or lasting satisfaction, peace, well-being. And that these things have that capacity inherent in them that therefore we must get rid of or somehow avoid or excise from our life. The very fact that things are not permanent, do not last, are fluid, evanescent, temporary, inconstant, changing, impermanent. That very fact means that there is nothing, no place, no person, no possession, no inner experience or meditative attainment, there is no thing that can do it for us in a permanent way. That we can get and have and keep. As the basis of ultimate fulfillment and well-being. And there is equally nothing that stands in the way of that. In and of itself. And yet somehow... We imagine, we believe that somehow, yes, there is. And maybe if I just try a little harder, if I, I just did it a little better, then maybe it would work. Then I could actually find and get that thing, that condition, that job, that house, that partner, that relationship, those family dynamics or whatever it might be, or the right teacher or the right cushion. I've seen the cushion that guy up there has got. It looks pretty sophisticated. It's made of two yoga blocks sitting on an inflatable camping seat. Yes, it's good, I tell you. Um, and we see things and we think, I'd like one of those. Yeah, sure, fine, why not? But to imagine that anything like that can do it for us in the end. No. But we do. We're hopeful beings. There's a, a lovely story of Mullah Nasruddin, who uh, Helen referred to yesterday, this wonderful Sufi teaching figure who's both a wise man, it seems, and also a fool. Though one suspects his foolishness is perhaps simply to wake us up to our own. Anyway, Nasruddin one day is found sitting in the village square on market day with a large pile of red-hot chilies sitting in front of him. He's picking up the chilies one at a time and he's eating them. And his face is red, his nose and his eyes are streaming with mucus, and he's obviously in considerable distress. And he's eating... And his friends come up and say, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? 
And Nasruddin picks one of the chilies up and eats it. And his whole body shudders with the obvious trauma of eating this thing. And he says, I am eating these chilies. And they said, yes, Muller, Muller, we can see you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? Nazarin smiles and looks at them. He says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. <laughs> Aren't we a little bit like that? We think, well, if I just worked a bit harder at getting it the way I think it's supposed to be, then I'll succeed at it. If I could just make me into the version of me I think that will be the happy one or the loved one, then it'll be okay. If we've been working at it for even a couple of decades, let alone quite a few more than that, and we haven't managed to make it happen, it's probably not going to happen. That might sound like bad news, but ultimately it's not. There's a kind of an a rather sweet and almost endearing innocence to a human being to keep trying to find through sometimes unsuccessful pathways a different outcome. That sense of hope for fulfillment. Have you noticed yourself slinking down the hallway to the notice board and looking at the notices to see if there's something new? Or reading the schedule, again, just in case you missed something the last time. And there's a sense of excitement or hope or possibility that there's going to be something here for me. I have found myself examining a teabag label carefully on retreat. And there's the sense that there's something interesting here for me. Now, clearly, there is of little, little real interest available. And yet there's that way in which somehow something in us comes up looking for, looking for, looking for, looking for, but not quite finding, and then looking somewhere else instead. If we can see that going on, perhaps we can start to bring a compassionate and kindly, but also courageous willingness to, to face up to something about what it means to be human beings in this world. In the rather well-known book, The Inferno, by Dante, Dante's Inferno, which I haven't read, I have to confess, but I have read someone's comment about, there is apparently, above the doors to, we can call it hell, but we can also call it suffering, or somewhere we don't really want to go, there is apparently the inscription, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. And at first it sounds like, well, just you know, get ready for being miserable, doesn't it? But it might possibly be the instructions you need to handle the situation. In that situation, if you go into it looking for something to do it for me outside of what's here already, that's going to be hell. But abandon that idea that there's something else, somewhere else, or someone else I'm supposed to be. Abandon that hope that that is the resolution, and it might be that the condition is very, very different, and that letting go is the resolution <coughs> that we need in the situation. So it's not a hopeless, despairing, despondent giving up. It's, 
in a way are letting go of the the magical thinking that we ask things, conditions, circumstances to do something for us that they can't. And it's not their job to. It's not their fault that they don't. But we need to learn that. We need to see that. It's not an easy one. And the third misperception that we find ourselves caught in again and again and again is the perception in which we see things as having some independent self-existence when they do not. Perceiving ourselves, others, and things around us, situations, even objects, as somehow existing in and of themselves as if they were separate from and not depending upon everything else around them. So it's not negating the existence of the phenomena itself. It's looking to see that it doesn't exist in its own right. It doesn't exist by itself or without resting upon ultimately everything else. All things depend upon conditions. You, me, I did that the other way around, didn't I? Me, you, everything depends upon conditions. And if we look closely at those conditions, we can't actually separate what we call you or me or anything from the conditions we depend upon. Because without them, we're not here. Or they're not here. If my parents hadn't existed, I wouldn't be here. If the food I've eaten throughout my life hadn't been available to me, I wouldn't be here. If this rather small but apparently large block of matter hurtling through the vast waste of space called Earth wasn't underneath me right now, I'd just disappear. And that's just a few of those conditions. They're just kind of broad ones. And likewise, everything else. What that means is that the way we relate to our experience is often distorted by a belief in an inherent, independent, separate and disconnected existence in things, including ourselves and each other. There is ultimately no owner of this experience that is separate from it. There isn't someone who it belongs to other than the very thing that's happening itself. When I was a young man and travelling in Asia, I stayed a place at a place in Thailand reading this book. In Thailand, there was this observation by one teacher saying, said, you already know that you are not your body. Now, I wasn't sure I knew that at that point, but it was an interesting place to start. <laughs> you already know that you're not your body. And it says, but you do not yet know that you are not your mind. I thought, whoa. <laughs> okay. I have to think about that one. So what we find there is a kind of a question being asked, being posed to us here. This isn't about a, taking a position or a view about I do exist or I don't exist. The Buddha was not interested in that whole 
sort of metaphysic. It's not about that. It's about looking at the way we perceive and understand what it is that's here. Because something's here, for sure. But it might not be exactly as we imagine or conceive it to be. And that might really significantly affect then how we relate to what is here. And so, first of all, we look at the experience that we find in meditation. We have this invitation to just keep looking at what's going on here. And what do I see? Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thoughts. Six fields of experience. The five physical senses and the mind. <coughs> Receiving experience, it seems. And it's simply being received. It's known. There's an awareness of this, an ability to be cognizant, to be conscious, to be mindful of this. But that's it. And if we look and watch and see those experiences, those thoughts, those feelings, those sensations, those sounds, those smells, those tastes, they're changing, they're fluid, they're moving by themselves. We don't change them. I didn't decide my body would grow this way or that way or that my mind would be like this or like that or that a tree would look this way if it grows. We might think, why would he decide he should have any choice about how a tree grows? But... Why would I have any... How do I, do I have control about how this grows? It's not that different. But with this, we somehow tend to think it's me. But it's not in our control. If we've seen one thing about our mind, I'm hoping, in the course of three days, you've noticed that your mind is not in your control. That doesn't mean you can't train it, you can't influence, you can't develop it in wonderful, beneficial and wholesome ways. And that is part of what we're doing. But part of what we're also doing is seeing that it's got its own life, its own nature. We can only develop it according to the nature of the thing itself. And where is the body that you had when you were young? I think Helen touched on this yesterday. Where is that body? It's gone. Where's the mind you had? When you were young. My mind... I remember once, a very funny, um, sort of like a... I don't know, it was a little plaque pinned on the side of someone's um, house. And it said, of all the things I've lost in this life, I miss my mind the most. It's like, wow, it doesn't do some of that. I used to be able to remember dates and times and who I was meeting when. And what they said to me the last time I talked to them. But these days, all that seems to be gone. The mind we had. Can't find it. Where is the body you're going to have in five years, ten years' time? You know, pretty much all the organic matter and structures in this body will be gone and replaced by new ones that are quite similar. That won't work quite as well, but they'll be quite similar. In the next five or ten years, that'll happen to pretty much everything. Hopefully there'll be a few neurons, neurons that survive that journey. But that's about it. And yet that that we're going to be living in, if we're still alive in five or ten years' time, it's not out there waiting for us. It's not like you go into the cupboard and get the next one out and put it on in the morning. It doesn't exist. It's not there. And the thoughts? How many hundreds and thousands of thoughts did we have just in the early morning sitting? 
let alone all day or in my life. And they're gone. Look at them. Look how important those thoughts were. How they felt so meaningful and significant. And where are they now? They're gone. And all the important and meaningful thoughts you'll have tomorrow? Yes, I'm afraid you'll have some more tomorrow. Or maybe you're happy to know you have some more tomorrow. Actually, I don't know for sure. Maybe you won't. But I'm imagining most of us probably will have a few. They're not sort of backed up in a filing cabinet somewhere waiting to sort of download. They don't exist. They're not there. So what does that say about the point I'm in right now? Between all of that, not just yesterday, but up until the fraction of a moment before right now, and before the fraction of a moment after right now, which keeps moving, but it's still that. Oh, actually, there's very little here I can take hold of. And the Buddha said, he asked his followers and the people interested in following his teachings, he said, so these experiences that are changing, that are uncontrollable, that don't give you lasting satisfaction, does it make sense to take them as who you are? To define yourself in terms of these? Does that make sense? Or he said, is it proper to do this? Like, does it, does it serve? And no, most of the followers, the ones who figured out what he was talking about, would say, actually, no, it doesn't really, does it? No. So we're asked here to examine this experience of being alive, the sense of self that arises with the ideas and the beliefs and the thoughts and the feelings, the images, the roles that we inhabit, and how strongly we take them to somehow define who and what we are. Our preferences, our habits, the good qualities, the not-so-good qualities. You know, Whether we think I'm, I'm a, a lazy person or a successful person or a failure, or whether I'm mostly a happy and good-natured sort of person, or whether I'm a bit of a mean and grumpy and sad old person. And all these stories we have about ourselves. All these stories we have. Our history, our past, our present, our future. The stories of I was, I will be, I am. All these stories, if we look at them carefully, all these descriptions of the things I want and hope to be, or absolutely don't want and hope not to be, all these things, they're based on a tendency we have to identify with the experiences arising as defining who I am, saying this is telling me who I am. And the effect of that is that we view what we take ourselves to be as something separate, removed, isolated, disconnected, somehow boundaried within the framework of these experiences that I'm experiencing that tell me this is me. And yet, even the thought that says, but just a moment, it's me having this experience. But it's just another thought. And actually, half the people in the room are having that thought. But no, no, it's me having this experience. So it's not your thought particularly anyway. It's not original, that's for sure. And it may not even be accurate. <coughs> Popularity is not necessarily the mark of truth, interestingly enough. And it's, for me, I reflect on it, that sense of how something arises and we think, oh, it's me. 
It's a bit like a circus clown. You go to the big top, there's a wonderful performance, the flying trapeze artists. Amazing, sublime skills, incredible, sort of death-defying acrobatics in the air. No net, no safety cord. And then after these performers have gone off, clown walks into the middle of the ring. It was me. Yeah, I did that. And we all laugh because we know, huh, this is part of the show. This is part of the show. Of course, the clown isn't the one who is doing all of that. We know that. And we don't mind that the clown says, it was me, it was me, I did it. Aren't I great? Don't you love me? When we see this that arises in us that says, it's me, it's me doing it all. Actually, oh, that's part of the show. That's part of what we get to watch, to see, to begin to understand. It's not that we have to have a problem with the clown, but we need to understand what's going on. Because when we identify with experience as me or as mine, we find ourselves compelled to have to act on the urges that arise. Because if desire arises and it's me and it's mine, then I have to get that thing. Or if aversion arises and it's me and it's mine, I have to get rid of that thing. I have no other option here. But if it's just, oh, look, here's desire arising. Well, look at that. It seems pretty compelling. Yeah, chocolate cake. I would like some chocolate cake, yeah. But there isn't any. So, okay. Sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned chocolate cake, should I? That was, that was, I don't know where that came from. But there we are. Oh, but oh, look. Very obviously, someone says chocolate cake. I go, even I said it, and I go, oh, yes, please. <laughs> See how mechanistic process that is. It's not really me. I didn't ever decide to like chocolate cake. I can't decide to not like chocolate cake. It's like that with all those things that feel really important to us. I also don't like celery, and I can't decide to like it. I've tried. It doesn't work. I can live with it if it turns up in my dinner, but... If I can get it out of there, I will. <laughs> and yet, it's got nothing to do with me as far as I can tell. It's just that's what happens. So it's really not, doesn't make a lot of sense to get too caught up in that. It's fine. There is cake and you can eat it and it won't hurt anyone. Why not? Or you can avoid the salary. Sure, why not? But we make a lot more of it out of than that. A lot more out of it than that. Because we start to feel that this is who I am. I'm a someone who likes chocolate cake and doesn't like celery. Maybe one day. It's happened to me before with food. Something I didn't like, I'll get some and realise, oh, it's nice. I don't know how that happens. Has that ever happened to you? Something I detested as a kid. One day I got given some and it's like, oh, I like this. How does that happen? It's actually not us. Conditions, circumstances, something has changed. And that process of attempting to gratify desire and avoid fear is so entangling, painful and unsatisfying. It's different than the recognition that of course we need to be attentive for what is wholesome, nourishing, supportive and beneficial. That's not about desire, that's about seeing that yeah, we care for our well-being, we want to support it. And understanding also that we do need to be cautious and aware of the potential for things which are harmful, dangerous, and um, maybe damaging or hurtful. And therefore, yes, but that's not about fear. 
that's about, or, or aversion or resistance, that's about just checking out what's going on. Because we care, because we do care. And yet so much of the time we're driven by these patterns of craving and aversion. Believing them to be who we are, when actually they're conditioned and they're pretty close to universal. We all have them. Some, you know, minor, you know, modest variations on them, but... What would it be like to just see, oh, here's this experience arising. Sadness arising doesn't mean I'm a sad person. It means right now sadness is arising. Happiness arising doesn't mean I'm a happy person. It means right now there's happiness arising. And likewise everything in that regard. So much of the authority and the power we give to experience is because we, without questioning, assume it can define us. And so the experiences we most strongly fear, resist and push away are those experiences that we believe will define me as something I do not wish or cannot bear to be. So if I see arising in my mind some thoughts of really being mean to somebody, I don't like that because I don't want to be a mean person, I want to be a nice person. And I try and make that experience not happen in my mind. And then I try and make sure that anybody who does anything that makes me have that kind of thought, I try and make them not do it. So then I want everybody to do things that make me feel good about them and nobody to do things that make me feel angry. Not because I need or really want to control all of them, though it looks like that sometimes, but because I don't want to be left with an identity that I can't stand or that I've been told is really bad and I've believed so underlying our struggle with experience is a struggle with trying to control a sense of identity dependent upon experiences which we can't control you see the problem we can't control the experience therefore the sense of who I am is out of my hands if I base it on that And the things we most crave and want aren't just because they might feel good or look good or taste good or whatever, but because they give me an identity that I want. Like maybe I want to feel good about myself in some way. And I base that on the experience that tells me I'm a good person because I was nice to somebody. Now, it might be true, of course, that we were nice to somebody and there is something of goodness in that. It's lovely. But that in itself won't work because then what about in the next moment when someone annoys me and I'm not nice to them? Oop, lost it. We never land. It doesn't stabilize. And this ongoing struggle keeps going on. That's the nature of it. It doesn't stop. So we're invited to just rest in the seeing of the experience arising, noticing with a tendency to identify with it arises, noticing the difference in the space that's there when we can say, oh, this is thinking arising. Wow, look at it. Rather than, 
oh, I'm doing so much thinking. Gosh, I wish I could stop thinking. Uh, you know, meditation's about not thinking. I can't be a meditator. Actually, most of the thinking is about the thinking. And most of the thinking about the thinking is because I think that I'm doing the thinking, which is another thought, and it's not an accurate one. The thinking is thinking itself. Thoughts grow in minds like grass grows in a field. It's just what happens. So we have these really compelling and familiar perceptual habits. The way we pay attention and the way we interpret the information we receive confirms the beliefs, the ideas we start with. When we start to open up a space for reflection, contemplation, considering maybe, not, oh, the guy up the front, he said it was like this, well, it must be like that. That's not going to be any use to us. It's more like, oh, I wonder, maybe it's not quite as I imagined it to be. I am sure it's not quite as I imagine it to be either, or even as I've attempted to articulate it. It's kind of hard to get the words to do that very well. But there's a sense of something that opens up when we just start to question, just start to say, oh, well, maybe I don't have to organise as much of that stuff that resists me organising it as I think. Maybe there's another orientation, there's another way to meet what's going on. To see that there's a, there's a kind of scary but exciting openness that's available to us when we stop defining ourselves by the experiences arising and yet at the same time we don't start saying oh I'm not that that's got nothing to do with me because that's not true either we are neither defined by the experience nor defined by somehow negating the experience as having significance for us <coughs> either of those positions entangles us in the experience To have some space around the ideas and the beliefs that we have about I am this body, these thoughts, these emotions of past, present or future. To leave some room around that. To say maybe. Or in a certain way yes, in a certain way no. <coughs> and what's the effect of that? We're not trying to exchange one position that says this is who I am for a different position that says that's not who I am that's not what I'm talking about not trying to exchange a position of saying oh I thought I had a self and now I think I've not got a self you can see how that doesn't really work me who doesn't have a self there's a problem there isn't there and yet sometimes that's how this teaching gets picked up It's also not to say that there's nothing here because, as I was saying to someone in a conversation earlier today, I think a, a classic sort of Zen story, Zen tradition's good for stories, um, it seems. 
Um, you know, a student comes into the master and says, oh, master, I've just seen it, everything is empty. There's no one here. Everything is freedom and peace. And so the Zen master picks up the stick and thumps the person. <laughs> Nobody there? Well, that must be all right then. Shall I do it again? <laughs> There's somebody here all right, but not in the way we've imagined or believed. Because what's here is something profoundly and inextricably connected to everything else that's here. And all those struggles to hold it together, to form it this way, to reform it that way, all of that starts to make a little bit less sense when we rest more and more fully into the immediacy of just what's here right now, of just what's revealed in this and in any moment when we're not referencing through that process of identifying with or identifying not with. Both of which leave intact a sense of something or someone over here or a something or someone over there equally intact. There's something far more fluid, dynamic, and miraculous going on than our minds can easily conceive. Our minds that tend to think in this and that, in yes and no, in black and white, and for good, useful, functional reasons that are not actually to do with the profoundest well-being or the deepest fulfillment that is possible for human beings. It's just to do with keeping the body and the species rolling along. All of which has its place and its value. To come into our experience moment by moment, innocent of our assumptions, without replacing them with the opposite assumptions, but just having questioned, having allowed some space to emerge. We can start to perhaps sense that we don't need to build up or destroy what we call ego. We simply need to see through it. To be just as we are and to know this condition fully does not require any manipulation. It does not leave us in a condition of having to continue to maintain something or resist something. And in the space, we could say space, there's other words, in the space that's revealed, there's a fluidity and a stillness in which everything moves and yet nothing is moving.
And in this condition, there's a natural responsiveness in which life is immediately and unstoppably responding to itself. And in this, the heart comes to rest. to know itself and all things is this. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we, may we come to see more deeply beyond and through the surface appearance of things. May we come to understand the very nature of life and the way things are. for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings.
So we've been practicing here together for a little over a day now and I'd like to offer some reflections at this time with regard to what we're engaged in here. To come on a retreat, to enter into a period of spiritual practice and uh, discipline as we are engaging in the, the yoga in the meditation and the, the different forms of the day. We can perhaps find ourselves at times at times reflecting on wondering, you know, what what are we doing here? What's this about? What is this in the service of? And I think it's a, a fair enough question to be asking. It may be a question we ask if we're doing this the first time in it may equally be a question we're asking if we've done this many, many times before and yet somehow, almost despite ourselves, find ourselves back in this situation. What are we doing? And I guess it's a good question to be asking also about our lives. Not just about these four or five days here on retreat at Guy House, but what, what's, what's this all about? At one level, we can start with the question or the inquiry of, well, well, what's actually happening? What's going on here? And there are many ways we could answer that. The fundamental thing that's happening, of course, is that we're here. 
we kind of take that one for granted. It's a little bit like, oh, yeah, well, we know that. But what does that mean that we're here to be alive in this situation, to find ourselves as we are somewhere between birth a little while ago, probably for most of us quite some time ago, and death, uh, hopefully some time away, but no certainty as to the fact that that is so. Here we are between birth and death, born without asking, choosing or organising that for ourselves as far as we can tell. Certainly I don't remember sorting out how that was going to happen and when and where. It just happened. And likewise, death will probably come for most of us without our choice or being able to determine how and when and where and in what situation. At least we chose to come on retreat, so we feel, you know, we have some degree of modest control and influence in what's happening here. And it's true, we did. We brought ourselves here, all of us, one way or another. And what's it like to be here in the situation where we can make some choices? We do, and rightly, appropriately so. But some of the most fundamental things we don't choose, we can't choose. And these larger realities we can talk about, we can point to as the, uh, in a way, the bookmarks of our existence, birth and death, and the life, the existence that happens between these bookmarks. This is something we're interested in, I think. Or if we're not, we could usefully be interested in understanding coming to know it more deeply because we just turn up here it seems and no one gave at least no one gave me an instruction manual I don't know if anyone gave you an instruction manual most of our parents probably attempt to give us something of an incomplete instruction manual but mostly since they hadn't really learned how to work this thing anyway it's a pretty limited bunch of instructions we got so how do we live what makes sense? What's truly useful, skillful, helpful? This is really what we're here. That's what I'm here to explore. That's what I'm interested in, the exploration of. And uh, when I come and sit at the, it seems, front of the hall, or certainly in front of all of you good folk, in an evening such as this, to talk, I... I really enjoy taking a moment just to kneel down and express my gratitude and appreciation to the Buddha. It's a traditional form that this image behind us represents something of a human being who dedicated themselves to, to awakening, to understanding what was true, what was skillful, what was beneficial and wholesome in life. And in dedicating themselves not just to understanding that, but to sharing that understanding offered an immense gift to, to me personally, <coughs> I feel incredibly fortunate in that regard, and actually to, all, to us all. And so the sense of starting from a place of some acknowledgement of what we don't know, but also perhaps the good fortune that we have to be here at all, and the good fortune we have to have the guidance and the input of others who have been in this place before us. And the Buddha is one, but there are many. 
who have been in this place before us and have shared what they learned for our to contribute to, to support our well-being. So here we are. Life comes, it seems, without an effective instruction book. Or else, of course, we'd have all figured it out, done it right, lived happily ever after, presumably, and the world would be a rather less conflicted place than it is. So we enter into this space, perhaps with some sense of willingness or curiosity to be touched by our life, to be moved by, impacted by, affected by our life. We might think, and probably most of us do think, that we're coming in here to kind of get a handle on it, to figure out what to do with it, to know how better to organize it. In some way that kind of attitude and intention is often underlying much of our activity. And yet I think the truth of it is really it's not so much that we come here to manipulate it, but that by coming into a situation such as this, we can learn and receive what it has to offer us. Coming into the solitude of the silence and the spiritual discipline of practice, it's something where we perhaps start to feel our life more keenly, more directly, more vividly. We just start to notice. Initially, of course, what we feel more keenly, more vividly, more directly isn't necessarily what we were hoping to feel. It may be more the, the tiredness or the discomfort or the boredom or the confusion and frustration that sometimes arises in our minds or in our bodies. And we're not quite sure that's really what we want to feel more of or more deeply, more keenly. We think, oh, I'd like to be more intimate with my life, but not that, please. No, I don't want to be more intimate with that. That's not what I want my life to contain. And so, although it looks like it could be quite an idyllic situation, you know, we come on retreat, the food is provided, the accommodations are, you know, they're not fancy or opulent, but they're comfortable and they're tidy and they're clean and they've been cared for and maybe we can sense that the care that's gone into the place and you know we get to do a little bit of meditation you describe that to your friends you know who haven't done it before what does that involve it well oh we sit around on a soft cushion for a little while you know 20 minutes 30 minutes 40 minutes then we get up and we just sort of amble back and forth a little while and then we go back and sit down and then we lie down and we move our body slowly and you know describe the yoga and there's some invitation to reflect and contemplate and but it all sounds like it should be kind of pretty much fun and easy doesn't it at one level and yet the truth of it is it's not necessarily so we find all sorts of ways in which this relatively simple engagement of sitting of walking, of standing, and of moving our body through different postures and expressions of what's possible for a human body to explore and to express, that it's not easy for us. And in this situation, we're kind of, we're creating together an environment in which we start to see more clearly what's going on. You know, the bottom line, in many ways, to what we initially encounter is that 
things are not always the way we want them to be. Our mind is not the way we want it to be. Well, maybe your mind is, but lots of people I talk to tell me their mind doesn't do what they tell it to. How annoying. Ask it to be quiet and it chatters away. Tell it to be bright and clear and mindful and it gets dopey and dozy and sleepy and confused. That's our mind. It feels pretty personal. And it doesn't do what we say. My gosh. And then, of course, our bodies, likewise. Sometimes they can stretch and be flexible. Sometimes they seem stiff and tight and sore. Just this morning, actually, it was this afternoon, sorry, I lay down for a couple of moments on my bed and I just noticed this pain behind my shoulder blade. don't know what that it's about. And I thought, oh, I'll just stretch that, move that. And then suddenly my arm didn't want to move. If I did this with it, it hurt. And I thought, my first thought was, oh no, what if it stays like this? Now, you're going to chuckle because probably quite a few of you have heard me suggest in the past or even today that things do change. But that's the mind that comes in, oh no, what if this is it? That's my arm gone. I have a friend who's got a frozen shoulder. Oh my gosh. You know, maybe this is it for me. And the body worker I've been seeing recently, she's going to be really disappointed in me. So we go from the, you know, the tragedy of sudden discomfort, unexpected discomfort, to, oh my gosh, permanent injury, and then embarrassment in the face of my body worker, who I'd like to impress by the fact that my body's getting better rather than getting worse. And it's like all that in a moment. Oh my gosh, can I see that? Can I see what my mind does in a moment like that? Because here we have an opportunity to see what our mind does. And although what we see doesn't always look like good news, it's good news that we can see it. What we can see does not ultimately have the power to bind us. So far as we're not aware of what's going on, we can be bound, caught, entangled, imprisoned, and profoundly limited by patterns and habits, dynamics of mental behavior and reactivity that we haven't understood and in not understanding have allowed to gain considerable power over us, which they don't in themselves have. But this invitation to look, to see, oh, yeah, things are not always as we wish them to be. We experience dullness when we want to be bright. Pain when we want to feel comfortable. Sleepiness when we want to be awake. And of course, sometimes wakefulness when at the end of the day we'd really rather go to sleep. Gosh. And what we tend to do with this at one level, we don't really want to acknowledge fully that it's there. We tend to look away from it. And so we only really see it when we can't help but acknowledge it. In our life, there's lots of ways we all know and have developed culturally, socially, as well as individually, personally, to not have to really see that this is so. To live in the, the hope and the fantasy, really, that there is a way or a place and a condition in which everything could be just as you wish it to be or just as I wish it to be, or as we all would wish it to be. And if we just work a little harder, work a little longer, work a little faster, work a little later into the night, whether at our office or on ourself, we'll get to that point, that place where it's all just so. 
Ah, wouldn't that be nice? We're going to do that tomorrow. We could sell a lot of tickets, couldn't we? We're going to get there tomorrow. We'd all stay on, wouldn't we? I would. I'd buy two tickets. And yet, as we come into conscious contact with our experiences, as mature human adults, as beings who can see and comprehend what is actually going on, we see there's this movement towards that place where it's all going to be great and fine, somewhere in front of us, that no matter how long we've been moving towards that place, we haven't got there. It keeps somehow moving away from us. The idea that somehow in front of me is some condition in which I can completely rest, relax, and feel always great is attractive and compelling, but ultimately it doesn't relate to our reality, the truth of our experience does not seem to confirm that possibility. Of course, there are many things that are wonderful, that are lovely, that are beautiful, touching and delightful in life. And we can know and enjoy these things and cultivate and develop our contact with them, and that's important. But it's equally important that we acknowledge and understand that, oh, yeah, this movement of trying to get to somewhere else trying to get something else, trying to become someone else other than where we are, other than who we are. That this process is profoundly unsatisfying, unfulfilling and something we can never come to the end of so long as we continue to subscribe to what it asks of us, which is to keep moving towards some idea thing, place, situation, or sense of who I think I should be, that I have come to believe will mean I am therefore fulfilled. And so there's a way we can start to notice how driven our life is. Part of what happens is we just say, okay, let's just land here and stop. And it sounds like a nice idea to me and to you, perhaps, let's stop, let's have a break. But what we notice is that we can't just stop. We might actually get our bodies to pause for a little while, but our mind just keeps on spinning much of the time. And we can practice meditation, and there are ways in which the mind can be supported and trained to calm and quiet and steady. But it takes some time. And what we notice before that started to happen, oh, it may be happening for us, it actually will be happening, but maybe not as fast as we like, we notice how uncomfortable it is to be inhabiting an experience in which the mind is relentlessly spinning. And we don't normally feel how uncomfortable that is because we don't really let ourselves notice that. We're not really fully present for it. But so many conversations over years and decades I've had with people who'd really like their mind to stop. Why is that? We want the thinking to stop. Because it's actually uncomfortable. It's painful. It's distressing. That's not to make thinking the bad guy or the problem, but to see we need to understand what's driving our mind. 
And so much it is this belief in the idea that there is somewhere else, there is something else, there is some condition which if I can just get there, then everything's going to be good. And here, we are in a situation where we consciously choose, or maybe accidentally choose, um, to put ourselves in a situation where we have less control over some things that are rather important to us for being comfortable, for feeling secure. We have less control over our food, as speaking in one of the groups today, someone commenting. It's really hard when you don't get to decide what you're going to eat and when you're going to eat it and how much of it you're going to get. But you're dependent on someone else as to when they put it out and what they decided to offer and how much of it there will be and whether the person in front of you in the queue will take the last one of those things that looked really good. Mostly there's enough bananas at breakfast time, but sometimes they run out. I don't mean to worry you. <laughs> but at home we just go and get another one or go down to the shop and buy some. And yet if something like that that's often so much we control, we, we have that, we take that away, we start to feel the kind of the unsettledness that often is operating at a less conscious level within us. It's not just the, the food, I mean the schedule. How long shall the sitting be? Should we take a vote? We could do it democratically. Um, it would get pretty complicated, I can assure you, if 60 people or 50 people tried to write and agree on all together what the schedule would look like. You know, Helen and I wrote this one. And actually, if you come on a different retreat, you'll find some different teachers write a different schedule. So it's not like the schedule is somehow a perfect schedule. It's just, oh, this is a way we create a framework in which we start to see ourselves against it. Because we kind of, to a certain degree, give ourselves up or give up our preferencing and our choices into this structure and situation. And that's really useful, even though it's not at all easy to do so. It's really useful to see. How am I in a situation where I allow myself to experience what it's like to not be able to control or manipulate or determine the circumstances in which I'm experiencing what my life is right now? There's a little bit of room for that. Of course, you know, you can have one cushion, two cushions, three cushions, extra blankets, you know, more cups of tea, less cups of tea. But there's less of that than usual for us. And in that it really asks a, a certain nobility of us, a certain courage and dignity to stay, to settle, to deepen into the exploration of this condition of being alive, of being what it is that we are. Human beings is one way we could describe it. To be really interested in this is, requires us initially to be willing to tolerate the discomfort of having less control over experience than we're used to. Or at least that we're used to thinking we have. Because the really fundamental experiences we don't have control over. And the result and underlying effect of that non-control is a kind of anxiety. A kind of distress that keeps looking for the way 
to get rid of the anxiety by getting things in control, by making things okay, by being able to predict and guarantee that what happens next will feel good. Even though we know that there's no certainty of that. So sometimes we start to believe and be sure that what happens next won't feel good. And then at least we feel a little better because we know how bad it's going to be. Of course, it doesn't work out that way either. Again, as some people were mentioning in the groups, you know, anticipating a lot of discomfort and pain, and it's not that bad. Of course, if we come here thinking it'll all be a sort of a, like a summer beach holiday on a beautiful Pacific island, well, we might be disappointed there too. But that way the mind moves into the future, it's like trying to create some basis of certainty and solidity in which we can take some sense of ground or find some sense of place in which we can feel okay. And of course we keep looking back into the past to figure out what we can from what happened in the past in order to predict what might, will, could or possibly should, we think, happen in the future. So the process of meditation is encountering this dynamic, this way in which even though we might wish to be more present, initially we find that not so easy. It's really important not to judge the fact that this isn't easy for us or that we can't get our mind to be so quiet and steady as we might wish or think it should be. But that we start to look and see, so what's going on in this? What is it that makes this difficult? What is it that makes this challenging? Sometimes, of course, we can get a bit angry or frustrated with the way things are. We don't like that. We don't want it to be so. Sometimes we take that anger or frustration out on ourselves. And it's really important that we don't reinforce or support that tendency. To understand that it's not somehow our fault that it's this way. It's like this for us all. All human beings experience these conditions and challenges. And any human being placed in a situation like this would experience it not that differently <coughs> than yourselves. So we can't control fundamental elements of our experience. But we can learn to respond to those things that we find not easy, perhaps in a different way. It requires us at some point to get real with ourselves about what we're doing with our life. I'm not imagining this is something that will begin for you tomorrow or tonight, having heard me say this. I imagine you're already in this process because otherwise, why would you have come to something like this? So I don't imagine that what I say is all news to you, but nonetheless, it's part of what feels important for me to speak and to name here. You know, to get real with ourselves. I remember for myself the experience, and possibly it was the first time I started to see something clearly about myself. When I was a teenager growing up in New Zealand in my late teens with my friends, our basic social activity, apart from playing rugby, was to go to the pub and to drink a lot of alcohol, and to tell ourselves as we drank a lot of alcohol, what a great time we were having drinking all this alcohol. You may recognise the phenomena. Other people might have told you about themselves doing it. Um, probably, uh, yeah. And, and we would talk about what a great time we had the last time we did this thing where we sat around drinking a lot of alcohol. And we'd also talk about what a good time we were going to have the next time 
we sat around drinking a lot of alcohol. But I kept noticing that I wasn't actually really enjoying sitting around drinking a lot of alcohol. And at some point, I actually really allowed myself to see that, oh, actually, this is really not that much fun. And you know all those times when I remember that we had lots of fun? Most of the fun was to do with telling ourselves how much fun we'd have the next time. But it wasn't any better the next time. There was certainly a camaraderie and a shared friendship in doing something which, from where I sit now, I think was rather um, foolish but understandable as a, as a basic social activity. Um, and there was a, certainly a camaraderie and a sense of a shared activity that was really important for me then. And I am grateful for those friends of that time. But the activity itself of getting, you know, quite seriously inebriated several times a week, I look at it now and think, my gosh, until I saw what was happening, I really believed I was having a good time. And so in that, there's a, there's a process of just wandering where we keep doing the same thing we are doing, hoping it will make us happier than it has done so far. I think that's a uh, definition of some serious mental health condition, which I can't remember, the, the, the act of repeating the same thing, expecting a different thing to happen than what happened from the last time one did it. And yet, we do this in the... Uh, teachings of the Buddha. This is described as samsara, the cycle or the wheel of existence in which we keep repeating the same processes, hoping that by repeating them, we'll somehow take ourselves out of them. A little bit like a, you know, a, a hamster running on a treadmill, as if the hamster imagined it would come to the end of the treadmill by running faster. And if we look at our world, our culture, our society, it's accelerating at the moment. It has been for a while. And mostly we're doing more and more of the same things we've already done, but faster and faster and bigger and louder and brighter, expecting that it's going to produce a different condition in our hearts and our minds by doing more of it. It doesn't seem to it to me. When I was in my early 20s, one of the... Uh, Good friends I spent those early years with uh, in pubs thinking I was having a good time. He got ill and needed surgery. It was a minor and relatively routine surgery um, that went somewhat wrong and sadly, tragically and for me very personally, very painfully over the course of six months and another four minor towards major surgeries he he was reduced to a condition in which his body could no longer deal with any form of nutrition apart from having it directly piped into his heart because uh, his whole digestive system and all his surface blood vessels were pretty well destroyed through the medical procedures he'd needed to try and keep him alive. And he decided that in a quite a tragic condition his body was not to continue to live and switched off the machines that were keeping him alive, and he died. For me, it was deeply distressing and grievous, the loss of this friend of mine, Radar, we used to call him. He had big ears sticking out on the sides. And 
it gave me, along with that real loss, it gave me immense gift that I came to understand quite soon after. Because I'd been wondering what I wanted to do with my life. In fact, I knew what I wanted to do with my life, which was not what I was doing with my life. Without going into the details, I was very clear that what I was doing was not what I wanted to be doing. But I was basically scared to do anything else. And when Radar died, it gave me a really clear message. It said to me, and I, I, for me it's like this gift he gave me. He said, do it now. Whatever it is that's important to you in your life, do it now. Because there is no guarantee you'll get to do it in five or ten years' time. Or even next week, to be honest. Because there is no certainty we'll be here for that. And this is something the Buddha spoke about. The opportunity we have in this life is for now and for here. What do we want to do with this life? What's really important? Mary Oliver writes in her wonderful poem, The Summer Day, she says, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, I do know how to pay attention. How to fall down in the grass. How to kneel down in the grass. How to be idle and blessed. How to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Doesn't everything die and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? To engage in spiritual practice is to really open ourselves to the deeper questions of life. And also to listen carefully and respectfully to what it is that moves in us, that perhaps speaks to us of what we really care about, what feels really most important to us. Here on retreat, we can see so much of the habitual and unconscious behavior that can be concerned with trying to control or manipulate our experience, trying to produce ongoing comfort and avoid discomfort, if at all possible. That's mostly what we're on about, isn't it? 
What we think about it, and be honest, it's nothing to be ashamed about. It's perfectly natural. It arises out of very important and quite, uh, you know, appropriate survival functions that we learnt, well, our ancestors learnt, our evolutionary ancestors learnt, you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of years ago to move away from the unpleasant, to move towards the pleasant. But that in itself doesn't lead to happiness. That in itself does not bring us peace or satisfaction or fulfilment. It doesn't bring us meaning. So to not abandon our life here, to not move away from what's going on, the practice is essentially to keep coming back, to return again and again and again. No matter how times we see, how many times we see ourselves heading off in search of something better or heading out to get away from something that's not, at easy, not easy or comfortable. If we wonder why we get lost in our minds a lot, and we do, most of us, if we wonder why that is, if we look and see for ourselves, then you can. And through the retreat, for sure, you will, I imagine, in different ways begin to notice how we're always either moving towards something that looks good or away from something that doesn't look good. And so much of that it doesn't feel good or it doesn't make us feel good about ourselves or look good to other people. That process is something that entangles and binds us profoundly, tragically, and unnecessarily. To turn towards our life, to turn towards our experience, that which is closest and most intimate to us cannot be escaped or avoided. What arises in our hearts, our minds, our bodies, that's what determines how it is for us. And the way we try and manipulate external conditions is all about trying to produce internal conditions. And those internal conditions turn out not to be controllable either. Not in any ultimate sense. We cannot escape our mind. We can get it to be quiet for a while. That's for sure, we can with training and we're working with some of the tools and skills that support that. We can get this body to feel more at ease, more flexible, more open, more soft. Absolutely, and it's worth putting time and energy into that. But that is not the ultimate point and purpose of what we're engaged in. Neither quieting the mind nor opening the body is in itself an ultimate destination. Although it's a very, very beneficial facility to have that capacity in body, heart and mind. But to open to our life wholeheartedly, to actually see what is possible for us, and not just to see, but to know, to be able to live an expression and an embodiment of what is possible for us as human beings. This is what we're concerned with. This is what spiritual life is about.
No matter what condition or situation you find yourself in, it offers something. No matter what challenges are there in your life, in your personal or your worldly circumstances, it offers something. Every moment of our life, every experience offers something to us. Even the moments that aren't easy for us. The possibility that we can turn towards and connect with, open to, and know fully and directly what's here right now. Whatever that might be. Every moment, every experience, every single thing we encounter in our life offers us this. Irrespective of whether we find those things pleasant, enjoyable, flattering, easy, or whether we find them difficult, challenging, scary, or embarrassing. And there's a pretty good mixture of both for most of us, it seems. No matter how we find those experiences, the possibility that they offer us for meeting, for connecting, and for beginning to see more clearly into the nature of things. This is the gift that is here for us in all moments. Wu Men writes, he says, 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter, when your mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. Whatever condition we find ourselves in, what does it mean that the mind is not clouded by unnecessary things? It's not about the presence or absence of thought or activity, but about the habits of craving and resistance, of grasping and pushing away experience that leaves us in a condition of disconnection from it in which we cannot be touched by it. And that through those processes of grasping and trying to get hold of, or pushing away and trying to avoid different experiences, the construction and the sense of identity of me, based on all of that, that in my sense of things are the unnecessary additional activities that women speaks of. That in the absence of that, whatever the conditions, whether we like snow or cool breezes in summer, whatever the conditions, it's possible to know a deep peace, a sense of well-being and a, a remarkable and profound depth of connection in the very midst of our lives. But it's not something that happens necessarily by accident at all. It requires a kind of a training and a development of what's possible for us. The Buddha was once asked, he said, you know, about, about happiness. And he says, you know, I know of no one single thing that conduces more to happiness and the end of suffering than a well-trained heart and mind. 
And I know of no single thing that conduces more to unhappiness and suffering than a poorly trained or an untrained heart and mind. And so we're engaged here in meditation practice, which when I was first practicing and struggling to find a way to describe it to my friends and family back home, I actually started calling it happiness training. Because it's actually understanding that happiness isn't just an accident that you're lucky to get or unfortunate to have missed out on. It's something that arises through the way we orient and develop our heart and mind. And that we all have the capacity to do this. We all have the capacity to do this. To keep coming back, as we have been doing again and again, and seeing if we can bring a sense of friendliness, of care, of interest, into the experience we're having. Whatever it might be that's arising, whether we feel like we're doing well or whether we feel like we're not doing well. Leaving aside those assessments of ourselves, how quickly we get into evaluating ourselves or each other, imagining that we're better than or not as good as. And, you know, again, as someone was sharing one of the groups, this classic experience has to be named. You know, so we see it. It's like someone is sitting, this isn't exactly the way the person told it today, but I've heard it many times in many forms. Someone is sitting meditating and, you know, the body is aching, the mind is busy, it just, ah, oh, 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 I can't do it. And then, kind of giving up on trying to be mindful or present or meditative in any way, one looks around and everybody else is sitting so quietly, so still, so calm. It's like, oh my gosh, look, here am I. And look, everybody else, they can do it. Fifty almost fully enlightened Buddhas and one overcooked vegetable. And we believe this. And of course the person believes it, that they just collapse, they slump. And of course, probably moments later, somebody looks at them. Wow, they're really calm. That person's re sitting really still. They haven't moved for minutes. And yet we project these stories and imagine these evaluations to have some, some truth to them when they don't. We all at times go through those feelings of hopelessness or discouragement. And the fact that we're here together supports us to remember that, oh, yes, we can do this because we are doing it. You are doing it. You don't have to do it more or different or better. Just doing it, which means turning up, showing up, coming back, beginning again, again and again. And each of us, all of us, we can do this. And the Buddha himself said, yes, you can do this. If you couldn't do this, I wouldn't ask you to do this. But you can do this. And so I do ask you to do this. It's not that it's easy. But it's possible. And you know, it seems like a lot of work to be present, to be mindful, to be awake. Did anyone get that sense at any point today? It requires a lot of effort to do this? Uh -huh. Now, it's true, it does require some effort because we have to go against the habits of unconsciousness, the way in which we get pulled by the, like the undertow of wishing to curl up and go into a soft, hopefully safe and comfortable, quiet place where we don't have to do anything difficult, which is called being asleep. And it's really attractive and compelling to us. 
And we have to work against that habit and tendency. And it does require some effort, for sure. But you know, although on a moment-to-moment -moment level it seems to require quite some effort to be awake, to be present, to come back, to begin again, to let go of those patterns and habits of reactivity, the truth is, if you look at it, that in your life, it's much, much harder work to live your life unconsciously and to keep wondering why it is you're banging into things. Because that's what we do when our eyes are shut. We keep banging into, conflicting with, impacting, and being impacted by, and not quite sure what the heck's going on. So looking to see what's happening. This is what we're concerned with to understand the nature of this process. And in that we can start to see that this capacity to be present, it's natural, it's organic, it's actually here for us. But we do need to support it. In the same way we might need to train a puppy in order to live amongst human beings. Puppy needs some training. And so, you know, if we try to teach a puppy to follow us or to stay with us, and you know, you put, so how do you do that? You put the puppy down beside your legs when you're standing there at the bottom on the ground by your foot and you say, heel. At least in English, you probably say, heel. I mean, stay by my heel. Puppy doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. Runs off. And you say, oh, puppy, come back here, heel. What do you think happens with the puppy? If every time it, run, it runs off, it wants to go smell a flower, you know, chase a butterfly, water a tree, all the things that puppies do. If every time it runs off, you say, bad dog, stupid dog, I told you to heal. Don't you understand English? And you get angry with it. What happens? Pretty soon the puppy thinks, that guy's pretty angry. I'm going to clear off as soon as I can. And it does. Our mind is not that different. If when you see it moving somewhere else or doing something you didn't tell it to do, you get angry or judgmental or critical of it, it doesn't help. It actually makes it less able to settle. It's more like, oh, when the puppy runs up, oh, oh, you want to chase a butterfly. Huh. Oh, 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 you've watered that tree. Well done. Okay. Um, and come back here. Oh, 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 you want to play with those other puppies. Huh? Well, come back here. Come back here. After a while, the puppy works out that actually this person's quite friendly. Maybe I'll hang around with them. The mind, too. If we treat it with firmness but kindness and respect, it actually starts to become able to settle more fully and deeply where we are. And in that settling, we start to get a sense. And you may have just had this maybe even for just a moment or half a breath. Or maybe you think you didn't even have this at all, where you settled for even that long. Though I suspect you probably did and maybe didn't quite admit it to yourself. But you may well have noticed it for longer than that as well, of course. But in the moments when we start to settle, when we are actually here, sometimes it happens when the bell rings and you've listened to the instruction that said, don't get up as soon as you hear the bell, but just listen for a moment. But of course, we know that the sitting is about to end. We know it's not going to be five minutes or ten minutes or even two minutes. It's just the length of a bell. So it's like we can relax because we don't have to endure it any longer. And we're just present. And in that moment, of course, it's not really any different than it was a few minutes ago when we didn't have a clue how much longer we were going to be sitting here and we were struggling. But actually, the experience is pretty much the same. But we've softened and opened to it. And in that moment, we just experience something qualitatively different 
that we might not quite have a word for, although we could put lots of words on it, but that we can feel what it is to be connected, to be present, to be landed, just to be simply here. And it speaks to us. It actually lets us know directly. We don't have to think about it. We know directly, oh, actually this is something I'd like to know more. This is a place I'd like to spend a little more time, get to know a little better, perhaps figure out how to get it to happen more easily. There's something about what happens for us when we're present, when we're conscious, when we're awake and in touch with what's happening. Even the simplicity of a relatively boring breath or whatever it is that might be happening. That quality of presence, of connection, the quality of our relationship to what's happening in the end is more significant for us than what it is that's happening in terms of the real qualitative element of life. It's not the what's happening. It's the meeting of it. It's what we bring to it. In a sense, we could say what we give to it, not what we get from it. It's what we give to it. And what we learn here is to give attention, to give the space for the experience to be revealed, to be known, to be felt. That's an offering from us. If we withhold that, we find ourselves distant, disconnected, dissatisfied. If we withhold it because we think there should be a different thing happening, we actually miss the opportunity to meet this thing, this moment, this feeling, this thought, this body, heart, mind, manifesting right here and right now, just as it is. But when we don't miss it, when we recognize, when we realize, oh, this moment is how my life is right now. This is the place of connection to that which is so precious to me. This life, my life, and all life, in fact. It's through this moment, this place, this point, that that's available and possible for me. Then quite naturally we become more drawn to that, more willing to give ourselves to that. And in doing so, we discover something remarkable, simple but profound. The more unconditionally we are able to meet our experience, moment by moment, which is our life, the more unconditionally we're able to meet this moment, the more unconditioned our life becomes. The more freedom, the more peace, the more ease is available. And this is what we're concerned with. This is what we're interested in, I, I believe. So I'll just finish with a few words from Rio Khan, who was a, a wonderful Zen monk, hermit, poet, mystic, and uh, rather delightful being who lived in the 17th, 18th century in Japan. Hirokan says, The rain has ended, the storm has passed, 
and the sky is clear again. When your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. Let go of this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. And then the moon and the flowers will lead you along the way. So let's just sit quietly together for one or two moments. And so may we all here in our practice together and in our lives, may we come to rest more deeply in the immediacy of our experience and to know more deeply what is possible for this human heart, this human life. To live with dignity and in freedom for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.